everybody, how's everyone doing? This is the Ancient Paths Podcast, episode four. Yeah, we've had kind of a delay in content, uh, at least as far as the podcast side of things has gone uh, for a couple months, and my apologies. We've just been through, a, my wife and I have been through a, a lot of major life changes. We bought our first house, we got a puppy, uh, been doing some new stuff, new things, uh, so my apologies there. Uh, I have been releasing some new writing and some other uh, blogs and whatnot on our on our blog site, so be sure to check that out. It's uh, ancientpathspodcast.blogspot.com. So you can always, I try to have some new stuff up there, hopefully once a week or every other week. That's my goal anyway. So that's kind of what we've been doing. But hey, we're going to get into episode four. We're going to start talking about the prophetic task. Um, in light of the of this year, uh, the turbulence of the year, the elections, and all the things uh, we've been going through as a culture, uh, I feel it's really important that the church reclaims its prophetic uh, vocation, and I mean that in not so much—I mean that not so much about personal prophecy or about exhortation or some of those classical things you find in charismatic and uh, Pentecostal streams. Uh, those things are good. I, I advocate those things, but I also advocate people use uh, discernment and, and discretion with them too. But we, we're talking here about a corporate a corporate prophetic uh, word, a corporate prophetic message that the people of God have always carried. And it's a message that can be unpopular because we're kind of taking the culture to task. You know, we're kind of being the conscience of the culture. And that's not always the, a popular place to be, you know. That's where you get the stones thrown at you sometimes. Uh, but it's meant to be done in love. And it's meant to be done, uh, you know, using wisdom. And a lot of times, uh, our culture right now, everything's so shrill. People are screaming at each other. Things are so stark and black and white. And people are enraged. And honestly, I'm pretty alarmed by what I see out there. Uh, just the political turmoil happening and, and how divided people are. There's not a lot of dialogue. Uh, there's not a lot of talking about the issues. It's about, uh, I have my side, you have your side. I'm right, you're wrong. And I'm going to show you why. Uh, and it's getting... It's getting militant. It's getting to the point where it's getting out of control, you know, and people are getting hurt. Uh, so what does the church say to that? What's the church do? Because they're not supposed to just, you know, sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. You know, that's like a popular theology uh, in some dispensationalist circles. You know, it's like, well, we're going to get raptured every minute, and, oh, sorry, any minute, and it doesn't matter what happens, let the world burn. And we're not talking about that. You know, classical Christianity has always been about uh, the kingdom of God coming and the kingdom of God renewing creation. And that goes to the activity of the gospel. The gospel calls uh, creation back to alignment with the king. And so an aspect of the prophetic task is to talk about that and to elaborate on that stuff. So we're kind of, we're kind of going to get into that right now. We're going to talk about those things. And the first point we're kind of making as a general point the church is tasked with speaking and declaring the heart of God over a culture and calling it back to himself. Uh, and like I said, we're not addressing uh, personal prophetic ministry. We're kind of talking about the big picture word. You know, what's the big picture word to a culture, especially a culture that's lost its moorings and it's kind of lost, uh, lost where it came from. But the church is not to be politically motivated either, but to be kingdom minded. 
We must be detached enough from political allegiances to step outside political posturing and critique. Uh, Our objectivity is essential for this function to be healthy. The mind of God concerning society is is made known to the church by a couple things, the spirit, the scriptures, and the consensus uh, from the lives of the saints throughout the ages. And, and that last point's, you know, kind of, uh, maybe kind of odd to a lot of Protestants, but I mean that in a healthy way, uh, because if the same Holy Spirit and the same scriptures and the lives of people, it's going to produce the same things. And if our lives aren't uh, lining up with those things, then we have to call, you know, what we're doing into question. But yeah, we're not, we're not meant to be politically aligned. You know, we're, we're meant to be aligned with the king, and it's what the king decrees. It's what the church should be decreeing. And a lot of times it's not into the, uh, we don't get, we're not supposed to get into the trenches and try to work out all the all the social ills through the political process exclusively. It has to come through the culture itself shifting and changing and aligning with the kingdom out of people's own free will and volition. It can't be forced. It can't be coerced. Because those things aren't love, guys. <laughs> you know? I remember hearing preachers and meeting other Christians in my life who, you know, when they encounter someone and they're trying to uh, win them to Christ, they kind of bludgeon them with the gospel or they try to use almost like sales tactics. And I've always found that kind of distasteful because I don't think people should be coerced or manipulated into the kingdom. It's a free will choice. It always is. Uh, and we can't expect a, a large group of people to act like the individual, you know, to act differently than the individual. You know, it's like if a, if a single person can't really be changed that way, why would a whole culture? You know, we have to kind of uh, readdress how we've been doing things and see if they align with the with the classic, uh, you know, compass points for the faith. Like what really changes the human heart? It's it's the spirit, it's the scriptures, and it's what God did in the lives of other people. You know, what do you want to get down to it? Uh, that's what's always changed us. And that's what sparks the prophetic message. You know, what, what aligns us with the king is the kingdom of God. <laughs> you know, it's the king and his kingdom. You know, it's, that's, that's where our safety comes from and that's where our message comes from. It doesn't come from our, it doesn't come from the, the tactics people use to rule over each other. Jesus said that, like, you know, the leaders of the Gentiles lord the rule over other people. But I tell you, the greatest of, of you is a servant of all. So it's completely contrary and countercultural, and we have to remember that. And we really need the wisdom of God uh, to discern what to do in the hour we're in. And especially right now, it's really crucial that we that we have spiritual renewal in the churches. I mean, I, I've been that's really been on my heart for a long time, and the, one of the whole points of having this podcast and different blogs and stuff we've been doing is a plea, a plea for the church to, to find its first love again. You know, I need that in my life, and the church needs that corporately, because we're lost. We're lost. And uh, there's all these other things vying for attention and affections and love that aren't the Lord. And until we find our first love again, the gospel isn't attractive. The gospel's full of hypocrisy. It's diluted and watered down. And that's a that's a tragedy, and if that's what we're showing the unbelieving world around us, we have to check ourselves. They'll know us by our love. Are we doing that? Does our lives look like something that's being remolded and refashioned by the love of God, or is it just like another self-help thing? Is it just some other 
is it is the church just a you know a social circle with a, a cross on top? You know, is that what it is? I don't think that's what it is at all. Historically, it's never been that way, and uh, true revival and true renewal comes when we see our deficit as Christians and we see our deficit as Jesus' followers and realize we need Him and we need help. We don't have all the answers. And we're at a crucial, crucial point in the church's history in America where we have to have something more than what we have right now because all the programs are failing. You know, people are leaving the church. A lot of people in my generation and the generation coming up have lost their faith and turned their back on Jesus and walked away completely. And what are we doing? You know, we're not doing something uh, right. We're not, you know, something's wrong. Something's broken and we have to fix it. You know, and what's the message we're giving to the culture? What do they see when we live uh, our lives as Jesus' disciples? Is it consistent with who Jesus is? Because people are quick to tell us when we don't look like them. I mean, we have this metric. We have this standard of what it means to follow Jesus because it's based off of Jesus and who Jesus is. And if we don't look like that, something's wrong. And uh, guys, we're not healthy right now. We need serious introspection and serious coming to, you know, we need to come to Jesus moment, you know. We really need him and we need some help. Because when we're compromised, we can't see, hear, or speak. Uh, And, you know, we can't help anyone if we're in that state or if we're in that position. We need discernment. Uh, Discernment is is, what is determining what is true and wise with the Holy Spirit. That's discernment. I mean, so we have to discern, you know, is the church in a healthy place? Are we speaking a healthy message uh, of restoration and renewal to the culture? Are are we conveying what it looks like to be Jesus' disciples? Are we doing that? We have to discern that. Uh, People are going to say, yes, we are. People are going to say, no, we're not. We're abject failures. But what's really happening is there's always extremes, but what's, what's wisdom saying? You know, what's discernment saying? What's the Spirit saying in this hour? And I think as God's people, we can find out what that means. But we have to do some serious soul searching. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, if you're in a state of spiritual blindness and compromise and you can't hear or speak, you have to be let out. You have to be instructed and you have to have someone come and hold your hand. And thankfully, our God's a God who can do that for us. But right now, we're in a bad place. Uh, so, guys, we really have to seek him. You know, it's like, for things that really turn around and shift, every Christian uh, that, that, you know, claims the name of Christ has to have their heart renewed completely and renovated and to look like him. Then the gospel looks beautiful because we're being restored to what we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to look like. We're created in God's image, and the whole thing of growing in the Spirit is about growing back into that image and growing back into that health and vibrancy we're supposed to be. And everything that isn't God, uh, that we our culture thinks is good or what we think is good, it kind of pales in comparison to the genuine real thing. That's why the gospel's attractive, when it's, it's most genuine. And uh, I think that's the main prophetic message right now. It's like, come home, come back. And then go out. Uh, we're not doing that. So, this is what this podcast is about. It's like, historically, what's been the cry of God's people? How does a culture change? 
And what's it look like? So let's get into that. I'm, I'm kind of pontificating here, I guess. So let's look at the prophetic cry in the Old Testament. What was the prophetic and what was the prophetic's uh, function? What was the function of a prophet in the Old Testament? Uh, basically, prophets function in the Old Testament uh, to call Israel back to its fidelity to Yahweh. Their voice was loud and full of passion. Uh, there's a really good author. He's a Jewish writer named Joshua uh, Heschel. And he talks about how the prophet is more like a preacher than a teacher. You know, he's like this loud trumpet calling people uh, to rally. And he's uh, he's pointing out, hey, we're not being faithful to our covenant. Hey, we're not we're doing things that are wrong and, are, and it's breaking down our culture and society uh, in ancient Israel. And we should stop and, and reassess and fix that. That's what they did. They didn't uh, innovate or create new teaching. They advocated for what the priests were teaching Israel already. So the priests were already teaching uh, the law. They're teaching the, uh, the covenant and all those things. And what people would do is they would get away from those things. Uh, they would do their own thing, essentially becoming their own gods. And uh, their society was built on following Yahweh. And when those foundations were kind of eroding, the whole house would fall down, so to speak. Like, you know, the society would deteriorate. There'd be uh, injustice and unrighteousness uh, that would oppress the poor, would oppress all sorts of people. It would just conflict and chaos would erupt when people weren't following God's ways. And so the prophets were there to declare uh, the shortcoming and give a remedy, which is always uh, coming back coming back to repentance. Repentance meaning uh, turning to the place of departure, uh, which is actually the first podcast we did. It was talking about what repentance means in scripture. It's not, you know, once again, it's not about flogging ourselves or beating ourselves or whatever. It's returning to the point of departure. It's, it's a Hebrew word, shuv, and shuv means to return to the point where you left the, the path, so to speak. And so that's what the prophets were doing. It's like, hey, come back to the path, come back to the, the ways of the Lord that gives us life, and that our that our people were created to uh, to partake in. Uh, the prophets declared the word of Yahweh to the people, and they saw that the prophets did. They saw the idolatry and uh, that unfaithfulness to Yahweh, like uh, like adultery. You know, they would see uh, they would see that through that lens. So to them. It's not just about breaking laws and rules. It's about being unfaithful. Like if I was being unfaithful to my wife and cheating on her, that's that's how that's how the prophets saw Israel. You know, is Israel being faithful to the God who who freed them from slavery in Egypt, uh, who rescued them and, and established them in a land and, and gave them a home and called them to be priests and kings? It's like he gave them this great honor and and great reward, and the people you know, throughout their history would constantly turn to other gods, you know, and the real God offended them. And so when we don't want God to be around, he'll be like, okay, I'm going to depart. I'm not going to force you guys to follow me. And so then all the enemies would come in because the protection's gone. And so that's Israel's history. And so the prophets were constantly warning like, guys, you know, we can't do this because there's all these enemies at the gate around us who will come in. And it's not like God who desires that, but it's like if you don't desire the king to rule, you know, he won't. And then you'll be ruling yourselves and you'll be ruling the false gods. I mean, the 
sorry, the false gods around you will rule you, and they only bring death and destruction and desolation. They don't bring freedom or liberty or justice. And so that was one of the tasks of the prophets. So that's one of the keys. Uh, the key to understanding the whole thing, I think in the Old Testament, it's the, prof- the prophet's main function was to establish and encourage faithfulness to Yahweh, Israel's covenant God. That was the point. And we'll look at Hosea a little bit. Hosea is a kind of a case study in this dynamic of, of faithfulness. Hosea had a pretty crazy life, you know, and it, it's it's funny because if someone like Hosea was around today, I think half the church, or maybe even more than that, would probably want to kick him out. Because uh, if you know anything about Hosea, you know, God told him to marry a prostitute. You know, he was u- he was using Hosea and redeeming, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit here, but... He was using Hosea's life and his relationship to Gomer to illustrate, to be like a living parable about his God's love for Israel. And it's cool because he redeemed uh, Gomer through this whole process. You know, so it's more than just like God using people. God was redeeming Hosea and Gomer's marriage, their relationship, and their life together. So it's it's a cool story. So uh, I'm going to read from... This is from the ESV. This is Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. And so, that's a pretty crazy thing to ask of somebody, especially back then. Because the the descendants of your line were so important, you know, and that was such a key thing, especially being in a covenant people, where there was blessings on offspring, there was blessings on furthering uh, the people of God, and so uh, prostitution by its nature, it doesn't lend to, you know, it doesn't lend to having offspring that are from that father, at all, you know, so it's kind of stopping the blessing. It's kind of stopping the line. It's kind of stopping uh, an inheritance. And it's it's infidelity. It's it's a betrayal of love and it's a betrayal of, of, of covenant. And Hosea and his wife become these living parables. It, it's putting flesh on the unseen tension between Israel and God. And so it's kind of similar to the incarnation. Not that Jesus was like Hosea and Gomer or anything, but it's like, Jesus was God in flesh. He was God who walked among us and, and has a body like us. And so uh, sometimes the unseen spiritual realm, the, the tensions and the things we don't quite grasp, God has to use you know, incarnational, what we would call incarnational examples, something becoming flesh, something becoming touchable. And the problem between God and Israel was an infidelity. And so to put flesh on that, to, to set a real example of that, uh, God had... God asked Hosea to marry a prostitute. It made it incarnational. It's not just an abstract concept anymore. It's it's something that people can kind of get. You know, we kind of get the pain that would cause Hosea to have a wife who is sleeping with other guys and cheating on him and, uh, and still being a prostitute, you know? Uh, we kind of understand that now, like the pain in God's heart, because we can put ourselves in Hosea's shoes. So that's what I mean by that. Uh, Hosea has a message for the entirety of the culture. 
you know, he's kind of pointing to this, like, guys, we're unfaithful. Uh, we're not right. And he's in, even though Hosea is able to provide for his wife when he marries her, his wife still runs to other men for money. Like she still starts going back into prostitution. Um, it kind of, the text kind of infers that when Hosea married her, it was a given that she would stop being a prostitute, that she would be faithful to Hosea. And when she can't trust Hosea to provide for her, she goes back into prostitution again, essentially. And that's pretty apropos for how people function. When things look crazy or they get out of order or they get chaotic, you know, God's God and he is invisible and he is mysterious, but he's also approachable. But when things get insurmountable, a lot of times instead of running to him first, we run to these other cheap fixes these other things that bring temporary pleasure, that bring temporary relief, and that's kind of the idolatrous impulse in people. It has to do with unfaithfulness. And so Hosea uh, kind of stands in for God, and Gomer stands in for about everybody else. But you know, she, she, she stands in, in kind of in line for humanity, so to speak, because that's what people do. And, uh, and God still tells him... Uh, in, in chapter three, verse one, like go and love your wife again, you know, bring her back. And it's cool because their story's redeemed. Um, God's activity in their lives brings them back together. And we don't read about Gomer leaving and, and committing prostitution again. She comes home, she repents, she comes back to her first love, and she stays secure in that, and she lives the rest of her life with Hosea, presumably. And it's cool because God took someone who was on the margins of Israelite culture, like Gomer. She, he put her, put her with a prophet who, you know, has a certain status, but also, you know, was probably hated too. You know, it's kind of a mixed bag with prophets. But here, he, here, God is redeeming and transforming someone's life through the covenant of of their marriage, and that's the same way we're redeemed. We're redeemed when God says, "Hey." I know, I know you've been cheating. I know you you feel dirty. I know you you're broken, but come, come home, you know, come and be married to me, and I'll be your provision. So there's so much depth in this. And you know, when I read this as a, as a younger guy, I was like, this is crazy. You know, why would God ask you know anyone to do this? But now that I'm older, it's like God redeems people. That's what He does. You know, that's, that's his department. It's, it's the department of redemption, you know. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's one of those things that un, un, kind of unfurls over time, and we see how good, how rich God is, how rich his love is to do that. And, he, and God uses this story to kind of cut to their heart. And we kind of see now the whole point of what the prophets were about. They were about Israel seeing what it looks like uh, to wound God's heart. To uh, they sh- the prophets showed Israel these things, and they proclaimed these things. It's like, come back to your first love. Come back. Come back. Come back. You know, don't run away. You know, don't sell yourself off to someone else who doesn't really love you like I do. And I think the prophets are sort of inflamed with that love that God has for His people, and that really consumed them. And that's why they're so passionate. Like they did all sorts of crazy stuff. Like Jeremiah, you know. Uh, I think it was Jeremiah or Ezekiel. I think it maybe is Jeremiah who laid on his side, you know, for like a, a half a year and then there's something like crazy like that. And, you know, it was just, 
Ezekiel or Jeremiah built like uh, models of the the gates of Jerusalem and or the walls of Jerusalem rather, and they did all sorts of like kind of like flesh and blood parables to show people what was really happening, like with the state of their hearts and all sorts of different ways. And it was kind of artistic a lot of the time and poetic too. You know, it was, you know, there's something about the arts and how they prophesy. And uh, those guys kind of did that stuff back then. So I think sometimes the best theologians are also going to be poets. I mean, David was, Isaiah was, you know, and that kind of carries over. But we kind of get this. Like, Hosea is a case study of what it means to be a prophet in the Old Testament. It was about come back to your covenant, come back to your first love. And we're going to kind of get God's side of stuff in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. So this is, this is God's case against Israel. This is, I'm reading out of the NLT. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. Excuse me. Sorry, guys. That is why your land is in mourning, and everyone is wasting away. Even the wild animals, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea are disappearing. Don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. My complaint, you priest, is with you. So you will stumble in broad daylight, and your false prophets will fall with you in the night. And I will destroy Israel, your mother. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Since your priests refuse to know me, I refuse to recognize you as my priests. Since you have forgotten the laws of your God, I will forget to bless your children. The more priests there are, the more they sin against me. They've exchanged the glory of God for the shame of idols. And so that's sort of, that's the point of the book of Hosea. That's God's charges against them. It's like, this is your infidelity. This is you straying from what you're called to be. This is you leaving your first love. And God's words aren't meant to uh, keep them in that place. They're meant to call them back home again. You know, God only wants to do good, and the greatest good he can do for us is have us aligned with him because he's the only source of goodness, true goodness. So his words give and create life. And so when Hosea and the biblical prophets spoke, they were speaking God's words of life into dead and dying conditions that people and not God had created. I mean, it's not God who caused them to be uh, unjust to their neighbor, killing innocents, cheating, robbing, destroying that's not God's department. That's another department altogether. So God's words always create that. They always call into being what things are supposed to be, what they're meant to be, even in their broken conditions, just like Gomer. Gomer was a prostitute, and God called her to be a wife and a mother and someone who is of high honor, who before that was despised and looked down on by Israelite society, even though I'm sure a lot of them were going to Gomer for their fixes. Um... That's what he does, and that's what the prophets did. They spoke those words into being on behalf of God. Um, Israel's social ills came from a fracture in their concept of who God is and the value of people made in his image. Uh, that's so key because God's indictment for Israel is, is not only are you unfaithful to me, you're also destroying my creation. You're destroying my covenant people, and you have to be held accountable for that because that's not right. So the prophets were also consumed with this burning passion to do what is right. That's what righteousness is. Um, they, so they called those things out. They called out those two points 
uh, in the second point, the second main thing and the, the second main function of the Old Testament prophets was a messianic role. It was to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah who was going to bring justice, who is going to rule in righteousness, and this unfaithfulness will cease eventually because there's going to be a good king who's going to rule his people. Because a lot of times it was the king at the top who was who was corrupt and the people decided to follow him. Um, and also works both ways. Sometimes the king's influenced by people, you know, and that was their culture back then. It was a monarchy. We don't, in America, we don't live in a monarchy. But that's what was going on back then. Uh, but the main, another main function, like I was saying, uh, of the Old Testament prophets, it was proclaiming the coming kingdom of God and the rule of God's Messiah. So it was about a prophetic hope. This prophetic hope and the proclamation thereof was about the advent of a perfect king who would fulfill the prescriptions of God's law and his rule. This is the end goal of the Old Testament. So that's sort of what uh, the end goal of it all is. It's this redemption through the Messiah himself. And Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, you know, they and Zechariah, there's explicit, explicit prophecies about Jesus in those books. And so at the same time, they're also prophesying to the culture, like, you know, we're dropping the ball. There's all this evil going on. We're not faithful to God. But there's going to be someone that's going to save us from our infidelity. He's going to change our hearts. And this is the messianic hope. And not only that, but when you have an unjust king and he's crushing you and destroying you, there's a hope that there will be a perfect king who's going to come later who will rule in righteousness forever. And that was another thing. It was good news to the poor, good news to the oppressed, good news to under the foot of someone else. That's a part of the messianic hope. And that's that's like the other big spike. You know, if, if it's a tent, there's two major pegs of the tent. You know, there's it's return to Yahweh, do what's right, and then there's a Messiah's coming. Those are the main the main functions of the Old Testament prophets. That was their corporate voice. It wasn't going up to someone and saying, the Lord says, you know, you're going to get a pony tomorrow <laughs> or you're going to win the lottery next week. You know, like some of these guys running around. It's a, it's like, you know, there's a king coming who will rule in righteousness and reign forever. And check your heart and to return to your first love. Those were the, That was the main message. And so that carries over into the New Testament too. That's, that's the Old Testament. What's the New Testament about? Uh, and this is really key for us as the church. It's like, well, what's our prophetic cry? You know, is you know, what's the gospel? Like, what's the word of God to our culture? We got to ask that stuff because I look around and I'm seeing, you know, it's about health, wealth, and and having your way. You know, it's about, or it's about, hey, uh, it's about justice, uh, or hey, it's about uh, this or that, or hey, it's about personal achievement. It's about tradition. It's about the, you know, hating tradition. It's about all these different things. Uh, but what really is the prophetic voice of the church? You know, what's the, the heart cry of God's people? What should it be? And we're going to kind of explore that. And I don't pretend to have all the answers. This is just what I'm seeing in the text, what I'm seeing and hearing the Spirit tell me. And I'm just one voice of many. And I, I only have my own perspective. I don't have the perspective of everybody. I don't claim to. This is what I was kind of getting out of my studies here. So one function of the of the prophetic cry in, in the in the New Testament is is the church's cry. The church proclaims the rule of the Messiah and the victory of God to the powers of the age and to the people under their dominion. 
and this is the church's main message, it's always been this, by the way, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's, uh, there's no longer, uh, it's not Caesar anymore, ultimately. It's not uh, the high priest anymore. It's not the president anymore. <laughs> if you want to be, get into a modern context, it's not all these different things. It's not the party anymore. There's only one true Lord and one true King, and it's Jesus the Messiah. He's the King of Kings. And with that comes the kingdom, which is about righteousness, peace, and joy. So let's let's go let's go back to the beginning here. So let's go to let's go to Matthew chapter three, verse one through twelve. We're going to talk about John the Baptist here for a minute. He's kind of the bridge between the Testaments, uh, the old and the new. Uh, that's a kind of a standard, uh, you know, Sunday school thing, <laughs> Sunday school teaching, but it's true. Uh, he was that bridge. It was about 400 years between the Testaments and John's the bridge. And we're going to look at John's message. So this is the, this is the NLT again. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness, began to preach. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is nearer. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He's a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were, were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. Excuse me. People from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming sooner is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be a slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So that's a pretty hardcore message. But if we notice, John's prophetic message is a continuation of a lot of the prophetic messages, like the main ones of the Old Testament. It's, one, return to Yahweh, repent and be baptized. That's what John's main message was. And that Messiah, this, this one who's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, is here. You know, the Messianic hope is no longer hope deferred. It's right here, right now. And so John was the bridge but the message is the same. It's repent, come home. And it said the Messiah is come to rule. That was John's main message. It was a meat and potatoes message. You know, it wasn't elaborate. It wasn't fancy. It was to the point. And that's who John the Baptist was. It was that voice crying out, come home, come back, come away from all those other things that aren't me. Uh, speaking on God's behalf. And that the Messiah, the Anointed One, has come, and that's the true prophetic cry. You know, this is the real deal. So, as as New Testament believers, this is our cry for the culture. John wasn't speaking to a couple people 
you know, giving them little prophetic encouragements and stuff like that, even though that stuff's fine. John was speaking to an entire culture and telling them, guys, we're off. This is wrong. What we're doing is, is, is ineffective and bad, and we need to come back and align with the king again. And not only do we need to come back, we need to submit ourselves to the rule of the Messiah because he knows it's really best for us, essentially. That's John's cry. That's the church's cry. Uh, it's, it's that call, you know, prepare the way of the Lord. You know, it's, he's coming to rule and reign. Like Jesus came in the, you know, at that point when John was ministering, Jesus came the first time. The church has always carried this message of come back, be reconciled. Jesus has defeated the powers of darkness. It's safe to come to the Father. And he's also going to come and rule again, forever, in finality. That's always been the historic message of the church. That's the prophetic message. And so we, we notice later uh, in Matthew, a couple uh, verses later in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, after Jesus is baptized, Jesus' message is basically the same thing. It's return to God and turn away from your sins for the kingdom of heaven is near. <laughs> it's the same stuff. It's calling to task uh, where people are. It's having them look at their hearts and realize, hey, this I'm not where I need to be. This is not what I'm created for. It's the same dynamic in the prodigal son story. He came to his senses and was like, this isn't what I'm meant to do. I'm not meant to, to be in this pigsty with these pigs. I'm meant to live in my father's house. And I'm going to go home. You know, That's the message. That's the core of the prophetic message of the church. It's always been that. It's always been offensive to some and life-giving to others. Always. Look throughout history. Whenever there's been a renewal or any type of movement that's that's full with the spirit is always about that core message. You know, it never deviates from that. It's the same. Uh, and the cry after Pentecost is the same. You know, it, that when Jesus ascended to the Father, and uh, and they were all gathered and seeking God uh, after Christ ascended back to heaven. That was the cry that came out of that first sermon in Acts two that Peter gave. It's like. It's like, you know, turn away from your sin and come back. So it's it's always historically been the message. It's come home, and it's the, it's the, and it's the Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the Lord. It's that, it's that two-prong message. Uh, and so Peter says in Acts 2.36, you know, to sum up the message he's giving in, on the day of Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. So it's proclaiming that forever that there's one true king and it's Jesus. And this is the king we need to align ourselves with because he's really the true God. And he, out of him comes life and everything else isn't life. And so that was the message. And, we still, and so we've always had that message. We've always been conveying that to the culture. Uh, sometimes we have to kind of recalibrate how we're communicating because sometimes that stuff gets lost especially when layers of tradition are added and and other things some traditions are good they give life but sometimes it's not the time to pull them out because they don't speak to the culture anymore <laughs> you know then there was something that the salvation army did when they first started in the 1800s they would play there'd be they'd have a brass band they would play on the corners and stuff and you know a bunch of people came to faith in jesus through that but that doesn't work today you know, it was good then, maybe pull it out in some other form, I don't know. But it, the message itself didn't change. 
just the form that carries it changes sometimes. And uh, so when Christianity spread to outside of the Jewish world, you know, Paul was you know, the chief thrust in that missionary work in the in the first century to the pagan world. You know, they didn't have that background of, of Israel's pedigree of, of knowing Yahweh, of being liberated by Yahweh, of, of the laws and the kings and the prophets and all that stuff. That was their inheritance. But the nations around them didn't have that inheritance. You know, they didn't even know what that stuff was. So when they proclaimed the gospel, they didn't have that back. You know, when the Christians proclaimed the gospel to them, they didn't, the pagans didn't have that background. They didn't have that understanding. They had idols and wicked spiritual powers that they turned to in previous times. So when Paul talks about that stuff in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, he's talking about how you know, their, their hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened and they gave themselves to all these idols and these false ways. Uh, so they, there's sort of an ignorance there. And there's kind of this uh, of self-rule there. But the message now is that Jesus had liberated them from these powers of darkness through the cross and resurrection. So that second prong of the prophetic message that Jesus is Lord, uh, it means something special to these pagan nations because they're under demonic oppression. They're under the powers of darkness. And the message is that Jesus has defeated those powers and now they're free. So the gospel has a militancy to it, but it's not against uh, flesh and blood people like Paul Wright said, like our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but about, you know, against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and stuff. Because that's, that's the true enemy. And so those powers have the nations under their sway. And they can be ideas, they can be you know, all sorts of different things. They come in different forms, but they, they try to keep people from the true God. And so when the gospel will go forth, and uh, the, the word apostle has a connotation in Greek about being an emissary or being like a diplomat. So when they went out and preached the gospel, they were being uh, diplomats of the kingdom of God, so to speak, and announcing to these to these people uh, who worship all these idols that, like, hey, the true God is bringing you close and bringing you near. These other things, they were just enslaving you, and they don't have to be over you anymore if you don't want them to be. You know, Jesus sets you free. And it wasn't just words. It was like the, the Holy Spirit would show up and there'd be signs and wonders that would uh, back the words of the apostles, that would back those things. Uh, so when Paul starts talking about that, that that second spoke of the gospel, that second you know tent peg, so to speak, he says, To me, though I am the very least of the, all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring uh, to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for God for ages and God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God uh, may now be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So there's this proclamation of Jesus as Lord, the powers are defeated, they're no longer uh, your masters anymore. Uh, this is this is that this is that heart's cry because for Israel, the main cry was repent. It's like come home, come back, come back to that history, come back to the God of your history. And for the pagans, they didn't have that history. So the the main thrust of the message was. You know, you're free now. <laughs> you're free. You're free from all these rituals, these obligations, this fear of, of darkness. You no longer have to serve those things anymore. You can come come to the living God. So that was the message that really got to them. That was the second uh, spoke that you know of the of the tent 
so to speak, that really uh, changed the world around uh, Israel because they're no longer under captivity anymore. They're free. Uh, and so that's what spoke to their culture, and that's what changed all these pagan cultures uh, into being on some level Christian ones because they've been set free. And that was the prophetic cry of the apostles. It was, you were free. He who the Son says free is free indeed, you know, elementary stuff. And, and now because a lot of Western culture especially has been historically Christian for a long time, we take that stuff for granted. It's almost like Israel. It's like, uh, you know, we had this history. We've had this history with the Lord for years, generations, thousands of years now. And we forget it, you know, all the time. And so the message is like, come home come back and also there's also the, the, the message with that that you are free to come back because Christ has made you free this all works together and so the prophetic functioning in the church in the corporate sense uh, towards the culture was mainly spoken by the types of lives that they live so it was more than just you know you're free come back come home it was also a prophetic message it was spoken by the way they lived their lives it was very contrary to uh, the pagan world where the early church uh, you know uh, was birthed in uh, they didn't have the ability to, to confront the pagan culture directly they weren't a powerful group of people the early Christians were they were a small minority often marginalized but because of the the passion and the zeal which which they loved their God, that's what changed their culture. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to take my baseball bat and smash you, pagans. You know, it, it was like their life was a sweet offering to God, and that's what changed uh, people's perception of who Jesus is because they saw Jesus's work inside these people's lives. They didn't steal anymore. They didn't cheat on their their spouses anymore. You know, they were consistent with the kingdom of God. Their lives looked like the kingdom of God. And that's what spoke to the culture more than anything. The gospel is countercultural, and it should be. If the, if the gospel isn't countercultural to the normal way of being human, which is, you know, to, as an old teacher always said, it's to feel good, look good, and have the advantage over somebody else. You know, that's what sin kind of does. Uh, and that's a huge thing in American culture. And the gospel is always countercultural to that. It's like, no. People are made in the image of God, exploiting people is unrighteous, and living unrighteously is wrong. And I want to live and reflect the kingdom of God. That's what that's what the churches should be about. You know, uh, there's a an author, Michael Green, and there's a book he wrote called Evangelism in the Early Church, and he kind of writes about the first century church's approach to uh, speaking and witnessing to Jesus to the greater culture. He says this. Uh, the church had qualities, and he's talking about the first century church. Uh, the church had qualities unparalleled in the ancient world. Nowhere else would you find slaves and masters, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, engaging in table fellowship and showing a real love for one another. That love overflowed to outsiders, and in times of plague and disaster, the Christians shown by means of their service to the communities in which they lived. So, excuse me. So Michael Green's bringing up a really uh, key point. It was their lifestyle. It was the way they lived. It's the way they treated people that spoke the most. It was the character of Christ that spoke the most. So not only in word, it's also in deed. It's in the way they lived. And that created this beautiful aroma 
that drew people to Jesus. They, the Christians would go, you know, and care for lepers. Nobody would touch them, but the church did. In times of plague and disaster, the church would care for the poor. They welcome in widows. You know, they cared for orphans. And that's what the church would be. That's what the church would do. They weren't just a social club with a cross on top. You know, they reflected Jesus. And in Romans 12, this will be the kind of the last thing we kind of look at for this episode. In Romans 12, Paul, you know, if you know anything about the book of Romans, it's a very lengthy, dense uh, discussion of the gospel. You know, it kind of, I've heard teachers talk, talk about how it's, it's very much like a court case that Paul's laying out against humanity. You know, like, it's, it, it's really, ways, in a lot of ways, just the prophetic cry. It's like, hey guys, we've been doing this and that, and it's wrong, but here's the right way. It's, it's to be aligned with the king again. And so Paul's basically saying that in very dense, uh, nuanced terms. But at the end, in Romans 12, uh, Paul begins to talk about what it looks like to live uh, as a Christian in a pagan culture and how that changes um, everything around them. And so he's telling them, basically, guys, you know, you have to live this stuff. You can't just talk about this stuff. It has to be real. It has to have meat to it. It has to be incarnational. It has to have flesh on it. Um because he's talking about all this stuff, he talks about Israel, he talks about all the, you know, all the, all the things in the previous chapters. And he goes on and says, in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Uh, that's really key. Because Paul's saying that, hey, the way to change the world around you is to have yourself transformed first. It isn't a scream at the culture, you guys are all awful, you guys all suck. <laughs> it's to show them what a, a laid down life, a life that's a living sacrifice looks like and how that connection to God is a life-giving connection that spills over into everything else. It's not meant to be confined to just theory. It's a practice. The Christian life is a way to live. It's not just some ideas and it's not just a, a get out of hell card, which you've kind of made it in America. And so that's one of the key points uh, in in verse in uh, verse one, it's like you are not your own any longer. We are living sacrifices, and Christ is King. And the second point in verse two, it's like that the way we think about uh, yourself, others, and the outside culture be with a renewed mind. We need to think about them the way God sees things. How does God perceive the culture? How does God perceive the problems of a culture? How does God approach these processes? We need His mind. And that only comes by having a renewed mind to think like God would think. It comes with the scriptures. It comes with spending time with God and prayer and meditating on the word of God. It doesn't come through trying to figure out in our own strength. So we have to have that kingdom mindset and see what the king sees. I mean, the word kingdom's thrown out there so much, it's been abused. But the kingdom of God is basically the rule of God, you know, are we living our lives underneath that rule? Because it's a good rule. It's the way we're meant to live, remember? 
what's that look like? And then uh, Paul goes on in verse 3, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. If you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection, and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. So that's that's pretty dense, and there's a lot of things to kind of get out of that. But I think in a nutshell, what Paul is saying, it's like the community of Christians, of believers, we have to function at a certain level of harmony. And each one who, who has a gift from God, use it and exercise it in love. Uh, but use your gift. It's like it isn't just, like we said, it's not just theory. Faith isn't just a theory. Faith's a, a practice. You know, we're, we're, we're living our lives as if Jesus is king, as he is. You know, we believe that, but we're living our lives like he actually is. <laughs> You know, a lot of times we don't. There's a disconnect. And, and all of us struggle with that. All of us are growing into our lives, reflecting more and more what the king looks like. So Paul is, is, is releasing the prophetic cry into them. Like, this is what the prophetic's really about. It's about the, the image of Jesus uh, being in God's people and us changing into that image. So if, if personal prophetic prophecies... Uh, personal prophetic prophecy, <laughs> if individual prophetic prophecies uh, don't produce that that fruit of looking like Jesus, we have to question them. The same thing with, with words over the American church. If the American church isn't looking more like the character of Christ, those words don't hold weight. You know, they, they're not God, you know. And, uh, I'm kind of deeply disturbed by seeing in the political realm the church's complete and total devotion to to Trump. I have to be honest, it's scary. It's becoming cult-like in some respects. I mean, it's our our hope isn't in people. Our hope isn't in politicians. You know, revival will come. But revival only comes by us allowing the king, who is Jesus, to be truly king of our lives. It starts with each individual life, and the cultures change that way. Paul's telling the, the church in Romans 12 this stuff. You know, he's, because he goes on to say, be peace with all people. You know, it's like confronting people with the weapons of the age through, through blunt force or through being caustic, uh, through demanding power and, and using prestige and using wealth and all this stuff to, 
try to change the culture by force, they don't work. They never have worked. Look at revivals throughout church history. They always, the culture is always changed when the church is changed first. And the church lives a life that looks like Jesus and proclaims that message to the culture. That's the only way it changes. It doesn't change through, hey, we hope this, this guy is going to uh, force the rest of the culture to change. Like if we put our, we're basically you know, abdicating our role as the church and the prophetic cry we're given to somebody in authority over the political sphere. We've been like, okay, this guy's going to do our job for us. He's a strong man who's going to steer and, and change the culture into what we want it to be, to reclaim this supposed lost uh, Christian civilization or whatever we're thinking. And that doesn't work. You know, it doesn't matter what our culture is. The, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God. And it's always been here. It always will be here. And it's going to rule and reign. So our task isn't to invest all of our power in one person and expect him to do our job for us. That's absurd. Our job as the church is to call people home to the Father and have the Father change their hearts. That's what it's always been. And look throughout the New Testament. You're not going to see that Trump cult stuff in there at all. It's just not going to happen. And I have to be frank, you know, there's tons of prophets in the charismatic world that have been prophesying Trump's going to get reelected, and he's probably not. I mean, what was our faith in? What was our, what was our faith in, church? Was it in this man or was it in our Jesus? Because it doesn't matter who's king. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter what culture we're in. We're always a people within a people. And we're not here to be combative. We're not here to to force pagans into being like us. We're here to win them to the Father's heart and let the Father change their minds. But the renewing of their minds. We really got to read Romans 12, guys. That's the recipe for changing a culture through the prophetic word. And, and I have to disagree with all these prophets. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, also a, a small minority of prophets that are saying, hey, this Trumpism is wrong. This is an idol, and you need to abandon it. And I agree with those guys. You know, I, it, it, I'm, I'm really grieved by the condition of the American church. I'm not alone. I mean, Michael Brown's been vo- vocalizing that, and so some other people. Uh, you know, we're in trouble. We're in trouble, guys. This isn't the gospel. So I want to read on to verse 14 and wrap up this episode. Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. And he's, you know, obviously he's uh, referring to Jesus' own words, like, these, he, uh, like Jesus says in the gospels. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Boy, that's a pretty uh, apropos word. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Guys, we got to get that message. Don't, 
we can't fight fire with fire. We can't use the vitriol and anger and hatred and violence of one side and, and use that weapon against them from either angle. God, uh, guys, God's not Republican or Democrat. God's God. You know, he's, he, he's not conservative or liberal. He's God. And we got to remember that. Like, in our culture, it's, it's A or B. It's Republican, Democrats, Pepsi or Coke. But that's not the gospel. Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, what, what like, political system we decided to create here in America. God's still God. And the kingdom of God has always worked the same way. It doesn't change. And so if we want to see the culture change, guys, let's do Romans 12. Because, like, blind devotion to a political, a political leader won't do it. That's old hat, and that time has passed. And I think God's exposing the intentions in, in the heart of the American church and telling us, hey, guys, come home. This way isn't working. So I love you guys, and I love the church. You know, repent, come back, be renewed, renew our minds. We have to get in the scriptures again and have our minds renewed. We got to see things the way God sees them. Um, that's our task. And if we fail at this, we fail at being Christians. And the culture won't listen because there's no changed lives in the church. We're just like everybody else. We're screaming on Twitter. You know, we're we're screaming on Facebook. We're screaming. We're not saying, hey, come home, be reconciled. We're saying, you're an idiot. You need to be stopped through force. That's not the kingdom of God, guys. Come on. Let's reason together. Uh, so that's that's the prophetic message. And that's the prophetic cry. I'm going to pray uh, and close this out. Jesus, we thank you for the prophetic word in your church. That it's always been a seed that will bear fruit. And Lord, I just pray that the church in America would, would get a grip again of the gospel. We get a grip again, God, of your heart for the lost. Lord, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't cower and hide from the days that we live in, but Lord, we would be full, God, of wisdom and discernment and righteousness. Father, forgive us for making idols out of politicians. God, forgive us for making idols out of our own opinions. Help us, God, to turn to you and to live kingdom lives full of the beauty and richness of Jesus. Help us, Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Take care, guys.